Open the podcast bay door as hell. Welcome to episode 46 of Welcome to Geek Town. I'm your host, Kurt Onstead. I've been a proud geek all my life, being into role-playing games, board games, sci-fi, fantasy, and especially superheroes and comics. And I want to help others join me in those pursuits. But I've found that sometimes people can get overwhelmed or feel left out because they don't already have what some consider the requisite knowledge to be considered a fan. And that's where Welcome to Geek Town comes in. Here you can ask your questions without feeling like a gatekeeper is calling you out for not yet being fully versed in every aspect of your new interest. It's patron shoutout time! This month, special thanks go out to Utuk Zul, Josh Bald, Julio Herrera, and newest patron Lyndon Onstead. Yes, relation. Specifically, that's my dad. Thanks, Dad, and everyone else who supports the show on Patreon. Remember, it's just a dollar per month to join in and help out. This episode and next, we're going to be answering some questions from the members of one of my favorite podcasts. It's called Oh Hotmu or Not. Led by comic book fan Mike, aka Siskoid, he introduces the characters from the 1986 official handbook of the Marvel Universe, shortened to Ohatmu, to his regular crew of mostly non-comic book reading friends, and they decide based on their look and the brief description if they are hot or not. It's a lot of fun to listen to the ladies' impressions of the characters, and there are quite a few surprises along the way. Since the women in the show are not comic book readers, for the most part, but definitely have at least one comic book fan as a friend, I wondered if they had any questions for the show. Well, it turns out they had four. I'll be covering two this episode and two next. First, we have Elise's question, which apparently she asked Siskoid sometime in the past but did not receive a sufficient answer. Well, once we asked you to explain comics, <laughs> and I don't feel that you did satisfactorily <laughs> satisfied. I was unsatisfied with your lack of answer. Please explain comics. Man, that's a big one to start with. I don't know if I can explain comics, at least not in one episode, I'm explaining a bit of the time throughout the show, but I believe I can define comics. If you go back to episode 17, where I discussed the difference between comic books and graphic novels, I noted that comics are a type of sequential art. That, according to Will Eisner, is any art that, quote, uses images deployed in a specific order 
for the purpose of storytelling or conveying information. Scott McCloud has a similar definition in his landmark book, Understanding Comics. He calls comics, quote, juxtaposed pictorial and other images in deliberate sequence intended to convey information and or to produce an aesthetic response in the viewer. What's interesting is that both of these definitions leave out single-panel comic strips, like Family Circus or, a personal favorite of mine, The Far Side, as these are not multiple images in sequence. Personally, however, I disagree, and feel that as long as a story of some sort, even just a short joke, is being told in that one panel, it should count as comics. So, I would say that comics are any combination of pictures and text that is designed to be read or looked at in a certain sequence to tell a story or explain a concept. That definition includes single-panel comics, comic books, and even IKEA instructions. So, Elise, I don't know how Mike answered this question slash request, but I hope this was what you were looking for. If not, please let me know exactly what you'd like explained, and I'll see if I can do better in a future episode. Moving on to Nat's question. It's on a topic I've discussed already, in multiple episodes actually, but she approaches it from a slightly different angle. Because I've never, like, read comics over, like, a really long period of time, I'm a bit confused as to how they transition. Like, for example, Spider-Man is several different people. I don't really know how... <laughs> how, how do you transition to a new person? Like, how does that work? And that's something I've never really understood. Don't answer, Mike. Don't Maybe answer. Maybe like Miles Morales? Yeah. Okay, okay. But that happens all the time. We talk about that. Like, oh, several people were this character throughout no, time. Yeah. Like, that happens a lot. And I don't really understand. Like, is it, is it behind, <laughs> How? Is it behind the curtains or like? You know what? Because I understand it more in like a TV show because they need to change the actors yeah, or something actor. like that. But why would you do that in a comic? And so, how? So why and how? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Nat, as for the how, that varies from hero to hero. I've covered a few examples over the year and some change I've been doing this in the episodes I've titled The Replacements, going into details of the various characters that have taken the mantle from Captain America, Superman, Iron Man, and the Hulk. Future episodes will probably discuss Batman, Spider-Man, and The Flash. That last one should be interesting, since it's probably the only case where the replacement character was active for a period of time nearly equal to the original. Now, as for the why, that's an interesting question. As was pointed out, in comics there's no need to recast, so when a change like this is made, it is being done out of desire rather than necessity. That desire usually comes from one of two individuals, the writer or the editor. There are exceptions, like the Death and Return of Superman storyline, which actually started as a running joke from writer-slash-artist Dan Jurgens, which editor Mike Carlin then latched onto and worked out with the 
full creative teams of the four ongoing Superman books of the time. But since most of the time, comic book characters have one writer working with one editor at any given point, it's usually one of these two who spearheads the idea. Personally, I think the stories that start from the writer are going to be superior to the ones dictated by editorial in general. In the writer's case, they usually have a specific idea as to the themes and point of the story involved in creating a replacement, and often have an end goal in mind, whereas the editorially mandated stories are more often just an easy way to create a big event to boost sales, and only end the replacement story when the sales boost has died down in order to get another bump from the original coming back. Obviously, there are going to be exceptions in both directions, but overall, I'd say that's the trend. One big complaint you'll hear, mostly online, when a replacement hero comes along is, why didn't they just create an original character? Unfortunately, these complaints are often more vocal when the person taking on the heroic mantle is a different race or gender than the original. There's more than a tinge of racism or sexism in these screeds, but even if they weren't motivated by these base impulses, the question of why not create an original character ignores a basic truism of the comic book industry as it currently stands. New characters rarely succeed. Again, there are some exceptions, but they are incredibly rare. Both DC and Marvel had two peak periods where new characters caught on. A first wave, then a secondary wave 10 to 15 years later. For DC, that would start in the late 1930s and early 40s, when most of their Big Seven were first published. That's Batman, Superman, Green Arrow, Aquaman, and Wonder Woman. Then in the mid-50s, when they reinvented some of the characters that had stopped being published, like Flash and Green Lantern. Almost every DC character that immediately comes to mind for most people will come from one of these two periods of time. Similarly, Marvel had its first wave in the early to mid-60s. Hulk, Spider-Man, Iron Man, Thor, Doctor Strange, all of these came out within five years. In fact, with two exceptions, Captain Marvel and Guardians of the Galaxy, every Marvel Cinematic Universe movie has starred characters from this era. I count Captain America as being in this time period because... While originally created in 1941, the man-out-of-time concept that has defined much of his character was added by Stan Lee when Cap reappeared in Avengers No. 4 in 1964. In the mid-70s, a new wave of creators added to the Marvel Universe, with names like Ghost Rider, Blade, Moon Knight, and Wolverine. Speaking of Wolverine, the X-Men themselves were rebooted in 1975, as their book was on the verge of cancellation at the time. Many of the most popular X-Men like Storm, Nightcrawler, and Colossus were created during this reboot, and are the reason the team has lasted as long as it has. 
Now, since the 1980s, almost every new hero from the big two that has gained some traction has been related in some way to an existing character. Ms. Marvel, Steel, the Miles Morales Spider-Man, and the Kyle Rayner Green Lantern, to name a few, can all tie their legacy to one of the enduring characters from one of the peak creative periods mentioned earlier. There are villains that have gained in popularity, and some have become so popular that they switched over to become anti-heroes like Venom, Deadpool, and Harley Quinn. And in each of those cases, it was over five years between the character's first appearance and their receiving an ongoing series. But if you're a new hero that doesn't have some obvious tie to an existing one, and you were created after 1980, good luck becoming known with the general public. So why is that? What changed around that time? It turns out it was the way comics were sold. Starting in the 1970s, but really getting going in the 80s, was the direct market. Let's go back. Comics were originally only sold through the newsstand market. Newsstands would get sent a bunch of comics, along with other magazines, and put them out for sale. After a certain amount of time, about two months, whatever copies hadn't sold could be sent back to the distributor for a full refund. This two-month period is why the month noted on most comics is not the month it is released. The month printed on the cover is for the newsstand workers to tell them when to take the book off the shelves and return it. And since newsstand distribution still exists, that month has never been adjusted. But the newsstand market is only a fraction of the sales for comics now, and most copies are purchased through the direct market. Instead of distributors deciding how many of each issue to send to the various newsstands, these new retail comic book stores would order the exact number they wanted ahead of time. But any extra copies left over, with a few rare exceptions, are not returnable. The pros for the distributor are obvious. They can print exactly as many copies as are needed, and don't have the risk of being left over with thousands of copies of unsold books. What the retailer got in return for taking on the risk was a deeper discount, in addition to the ability to decide what books to carry and in what quantity. Newsstands pay about 60-75% to of the retail cost of an issue to the distributor, while direct retailers pay 50% or less of the retail cost, depending on their exact deal with the distributor. As a side note, please don't think of using this information to try to argue for a better deal from your local comic book store. Even with those deep discounts, comic book stores run razor-thin profit margins and need every penny they can get. How does the way books were sold change whether or not new characters become popular. Well, the direct market caters to people who are specifically walking into a store to buy comics, as opposed to being something you might come across at a grocery store or a 7-Eleven and pick up as an impulse purchase. 
This has led to a smaller number of consumers of comics, although the people who do buy comics spend more per person than the average newsstand consumer did. While this shift from newsstand to direct market sales was going on, prices on comics were also going up. Even adjusting for inflation, comics cost about four times as much as they did in 1965. Now, there are a huge number of factors involved in that, which could be its own episode one day. And the retailers are stocking books based on the interest level of their customers. Many comic readers order their books ahead of time in exchange for a discount. They might also decide to pick up a book off the shelves in addition, but the majority of the customer's purchases are done off of only a cover image, the names of the creative team, writer and artist, and a two or three line teaser of the plot. So when you add all these factors together, you can see where a new character would be much more difficult to catch fire. There are fewer people seeing comics, and few of the comics that are seen are impulse purchases. So when a new character ties into an existing story that the audience is already familiar with, it's more likely to be ordered ahead of time compared to a completely new character. And if sufficient copies aren't ordered, then it's not worth it to the publisher to continue paying for new issues, and so they end up cancelled. I think that covers the basics of why replacement heroes come along. Again, go check out some of my previous episodes to hear the in-universe explanations of how they came to be, and let me know who you want to hear about next time I do another The Replacements episode. And that covers two of the four questions I received from the ladies of Ohatmu. Thanks, Elise and Nat. Next episode, we'll get to Amelie and Shotgun's questions. And while you may not be a podcaster yourself, that doesn't mean I don't want to hear your questions as well. If there's something you want to learn more about, please send me an email at welcome to geektown, all spelled out, at gmail.com. Or you can ask your question anonymously if you prefer by clicking submit a question at www.welcome to, the number two in this case, geektown.com. Other contact options include facebook.com slash welcome to geektown or twitter at geektown podcast. Also, if you'd like to support the show directly, come join the Patreon at patreon.com slash welcome to geektown for just a dollar per month to get access to full scripts of the shows, outtakes, and a monthly shout-out. You can also help the show grow by subscribing and giving a five-star review over on Apple Podcasts to join the Geek Town City Council, which helps other people find the show so we can all tell them, Welcome to Geek Town, population, us. Welcome to Geek Town is written, narrated, edited, and produced by me, Kurt Onstead. Theme music is by Aaron Lovitz, logo art by Archie Santana. All other sound clips are the copyrighted material of their respective owners, and no infringement is intended, falling under fair use.